for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Let's go to the book of Titus, chapter 3 this morning. I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 through 11. Paul writes to Titus, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. We're in a series entitled The Church. And in this series, we began in chapter 1 looking at leadership in the church. And we talked about how leadership should be qualified by character in order to be competent to commit to the work of leading God's people. And the second aspect of the church that we looked at in chapter 2 was discipleship. And we talked about how discipleship streams through mission in the church to grow and to mature God's people into the image of Jesus Christ. And so today as we begin chapter 3, we move into the third area that we're going to look at in this short book and in our series. And it's the area of mission. The area of mission. And as we look at mission, I want you to understand something. First of all, we're not talking about three programs for the church. We're not talking about three areas where we should program the church. But rather, we're talking about in this series how it is that the church operates to accomplish our mission of making disciples. Everything about the church and everything in the church is designed to equip and train the church, the people in other words, to follow Jesus faithfully. 
So today our consideration of mission will begin by focusing on fellowship. Fellowship. What it means to follow Jesus. Fellowship means that before mission becomes even an activity, it must be a gospel-rooted conviction to follow Jesus and to present a living testimony. Think about that with me for just a moment. Fellowship means that before mission becomes an activity, in other words, something we do, it must first be a gospel-rooted conviction. In other words, a conviction that is rooted deep within us because the gospel is alive within us in order to follow Jesus and present a living testimony. That's what 1 Peter tells us, that we are living stones. We're a living testimony to the living Lord Jesus Christ. And the life of the church should testify to the life of the church's Savior and the church's Lord. And that's what fellowship is all about. You see, discipleship in the church is the relationally networked training through mission by which grace transformation occurs. And we must live on mission for discipleship to occur that actually grows and matures. That's the purpose of mission for every Christian. Not just to get something done, but first and foremost to get someone done. You. That's why mission is so important for the church. Mission is to grow and to mature you into Jesus' image as you follow him. If you're not on mission, I don't care how much discipleship you're engaged in. Because discipleship streams through mission. And if you're not on mission, if you're not serving in the mission of God's kingdom in the local church, whatever discipleship you're engaged in is making you into the image of some other Lord. Because Jesus makes his disciples through the local church. And the discipleship or the equipping and teaching and training that occurs to make you more like Jesus, occurs in the local body of believers. I'm not saying there aren't other aspects or expressions that can build into this. But when you remove your discipleship from a local congregation and the mission of God in which that congregation is given to, because that's what God does, He gives His people to His mission, You're being discipled, or rather made into the image of, that mission in which you are serving. You've got to be in mission with God's people in order to be made into the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Mission is where God makes His people into His image. And mission begins for every Christian by faithfully following God. Jesus. Here's the big idea I want you to understand, friends, because we saw two weeks ago when we looked at the end of chapter 2, when God's grace appeared, we talked about the grace boom, right? And, and, and that, that eternity pierced into the here and now, that time and space continuum. And, and in that grace boom, we saw that when God's grace comes, grace transforms us to follow Jesus in the world. 
And that's what we're going to look at today. How it is that grace transforms us to follow Jesus in the world. Sometimes we wrongfully conceive of the idea that grace is just something we receive. And though it is something we can only receive and never earn or achieve, it's not just something that we receive in order to own, if you will, but to be owned by that in our receiving. And so grace owns us to transform us to follow Jesus in the world. I want us to look at four priorities from this passage of Scripture that Paul gives to Titus, and he tells Titus to commend him to give to the church. In other words, Titus is leading the church, and he says to Titus, I want you to lead the church in this way for this reason. And these four priorities frame our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. Priority number one is simply this. You must hold a vision for how God wants you or how God wants to live through you. You must hold a vision for how God wants to live through you. He gives seven descriptors that teach us to know how to live out our faith in following Jesus. Look at verse 1. He says to them, remind them to be submissive. Submissive, this is the first descriptor. And it guides us in how we relate specifically to the authorities in this world and the rulers. In other words, Christians are to be submissive to governing rulers and authorities. It's a general inclination for how it is that we relate ultimately to authority in this world. So whether you're an adult or whether you're a child, as you're placed in positions under authority in the world, Christians espouse a general submission to authority to honor the position, whether or not we believe the person is wholly worthy of our honor or not. Because we're not just submitting to that person, but rather Christians submit to worldly authority in order to honor the one who is our highest authority, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not talking about blanket, no matter what happens, you submit in all circumstances. But I don't have time to get into when and how we veer from that. As a general rule, he is saying to us, that we can submit and be submissive as an inclination to authority in this world because ultimately we live under the one who is the highest authority over all authority in the world, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The second descriptor he gives us is this, be obedient. Be obedient. This is a general inclination towards God's word. And we've already looked at in chapter 2 how the sound doctrine of salvation, of God, our, or the sound doctrine of God our Savior, he says in chapter 2, is, is that defining, centering uh, teaching that we as a church gather around. And so here, he's talking about being obedient. He's talking about holding a general inclination towards God's Word in, in our heart. You see, it stands in direct contradiction to a heart of sinful rebellion. And, and obedience is not simply about what we do in action, but before it ever becomes action, and more importantly, it's the inclination of our heart towards God's Word that desires obedience above all. I can tell you this, that the inclination of your heart will determine whether or not you will believe, whether or not you will receive, and whether or not you will uh, uh, trust to live out God's Word before you ever go to and read God's Word. 
Because what you believe about God's word says more about what you're going to do with it than what you actually do with it. Being obedient is an inclination of the heart of ultimate submission to Jesus in all things by faith. And he says to us, and he shows us that that the longer you walk in obedience, the deeper the transformation of your personhood into Christ-likeness. The the longer you walk in obedience to God's word, the, the deeper the transformation occurs. In other words, grace never ceases to purge at an ever-increasing, deepening level in the Christian heart and the Christian life. Going not only to the activity of our sin, but to the root of our sin, where God can convict us and draw us to repentance by His kindness and replace sinful propensity with grace-filled obedience. That's what God wants to do. Changing our character, changing our thinking, changing our feeling, and our wanting or our desires. The third characteristic that he gives to us is what? To be ready for every good work. In other words, this is a life that's lived with a readiness to act in godliness. A readiness to act in godliness. And the emphasis here is not just on what we do, but rather the emphasis here is on the readiness of who we are. You see, people that are consumed with themselves are never ready to do good. And any good that they do when they're consumed with themselves is for themselves. In other words, they may do good to another person, but it's because they wanted to ricochet and come back. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And if I scratch yours first, I'm fully expecting that mine's going to get scratched as well. Right? But people that are consumed with Christ and following Him and being transformed into His image live ready to do good. And ready to do that good for God's glory and not our own. The next characteristic he gives is just simply to speak evil of no one. Speak evil of no one. These aren't brain surgery, but gosh, they are hard, aren't they? Oh, I don't ever speak evil of anyone. No, until you had a bad day, right? I don't ever speak evil of anyone when I'm not thinking about them, right? I don't ever speak evil of anyone when I'm sleeping unless I talk in my sleep, right? I mean, we want to so quickly go, oh, I don't do that, except. And, and that, even in itself, is the grace of God at work in us. You see, Christians don't attack another person's character, no matter how deeply we oppose them. Because even in our opposition, we're still laboring for their salvation. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't insult and we don't speak evil of. Christians guard their words to align with the good that represents God, that their life is producing the fifth characteristic is to avoid quarreling christians are called to be peacemakers at all possible times hebrews 12 14 tells us this strive for peace with everyone strive in other words fight for it give all of your energy and all of your attention to pursue peace 
with everyone. Well, I, I live at peace with those that are easy to live at peace with. Good. That doesn't take much energy. But it also doesn't dismiss our responsibility to live at peace with people who are very difficult. Right? My brother and sister were difficult. But I continued to strive after them. That's not really what Hebrews is saying, but you understand what I'm saying, right? A disposition to fighting, it shows an ungodliness instead of a love from God. And and friends, we can't love another person when we're always fighting with them or when we're inclined to fight with them. Number six is be gentle. How powerful is mercy? How powerful is mercy? When you have the ability to crush, but you exercise the mercy to set free. Is that not the very heart of the gospel? When everything that we were and everything that we did deserved annihilation, death, and yet God's mercy was bestowed upon us. And friends, it is no less powerful when we demonstrate mercy to those who are most deserving of something altogether other from us. That's hard, isn't it? Let me tell you what is necessary if you're going to become a merciful person. A complete life of being God-controlled In every moment and situation. Because I can perform perfectly right here. And five minutes later, fail miserably. Right? It's just a complete lordship of Jesus. Not just over every area, but in every moment of life. This is the vision that Paul is giving for Titus to give to the people of God. And then he gives the seventh to show perfect courtesy towards all. In other words, a humility of spirit produces an honor towards others. It it treats them with dignity and respect without demanding that they earn it from you. I mean, there's just a, a level of honor and respect and dignity that you hold for people without demanding that they in some way, whether or not they've ever met you or not, should earn it from you first. You see, Christians regard other people as God loves them, not even as they present themselves. And when we begin to do that, we will come to understand that, in fact, God's grace is consuming us. Because it's pouring out through us to treat other people in a way that they do not deserve. And yet God wants to make himself known to them. Now, I know what most of you would say, but, but these don't describe, Pastor, the reality of my life most days. And might I say to you, that's the purpose of a vision. That's the very purpose of this vision that Paul is giving in verse 1 and 2. You see, a vision sees what ought to and what must be where something is not yet. And that's our understanding of the Christian life and how grace is transforming us. These actions may not be fully perfected in your life, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't be the vision for your life. 
We don't just throw our hands up in the Christian life and and say, well, man, I I got it wrong and I'm done. No, that's anti-gospel. That's counter-repentance. Which actually, counter-repentance, I guess, means you do nothing. You just stay put instead of turning and going the other direction, right? You see, a vision holds strong and powerful benefits for our lives. And when we hold these seven characteristics or descriptors as a vision for what God wants for our life and what we are living out because of what God is living within us, this vision motivates us. It moves us from where we are and what we are doing to where we need to be and what we need to be doing because of what God is doing in us. That's what visions do for us. They motivate us. Visions guide us. They show us that we haven't obtained, and they show us that we may be falling short, but it leads us to help make a plan to get there. We see where God wants us to be, and we see what it looks like for grace to completely transform us, and we know all too well where we are. But as we hold that vision, it helps us with a plan through the power of Jesus Christ and by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ to be able to set forth steps in order to follow this life that God is living in us. Visions drive us. When they consume us, they drive us, friends. And this is a powerful benefit for us. The more we hold this as a vision for our life, the more it will hold us steady to persevere when everything else seems to be going wrong or just simply not working for us. Yeah, I've tried being merciful. I got walked on like a doormat. Oh, well, then what you should understand is what? Consider it pure joy. When you encounter what? Trials of any kind. Blessed are those who are what? Persecuted for my sake. So instead of defaulting back to our pity party, a vision of what God wants for our life drives us. And just like the apostles in Acts 4 when they were persecuted for preaching the name of Christ and they were slandered and ultimately beat, what did they do? They rejoiced that they were considered worthy. Of suffering for the name of Jesus. You see friends. That's not just a holier than thou superior Christianity. That God has reserved for a few. That's standardized Christianity. That God wants to pour out his grace in your life. So that we all live with that kind of power. A vision also inspires friends. It not only inspires us. But it influences others in the same direction that is leading you same direction that is leading you when we hold a vision for our lives that aligns with God's calling we maintain focus on God's work in us and I would argue that's what Hebrews 12 2 is saying when it says of Jesus for the joy set before him what joy was that I think it was a vision of what God had sent him to the world to do he endured the cross You see, joy was the work that God sent Jesus to earth to accomplish. To die, to conquer sin, to crush Satan, to appease wrath, to bring salvation. And friends, for you and I, the only way we will ever overcome the condemnation of sin is to remain focused on the glory of our Savior. And that's the vision that He wants to put in our hearts and lives. Set your eyes, friends, on the kind of person God is making you Not just the doing, 
but the kind of person, the being that God is making you. And by faith, by faith, live it out now. Hold a vision for how God wants to live through you. And this is important, but we must remember the transforming power of the gospel in the midst of this. And so I want to offer to you the second priority is not only to hold a vision for how God wants to live through you, but secondly, he goes to this. Remember the transforming power of the gospel. Man, I don't know anybody that reads Titus 3.3 and says, wow, that is what I want for my life. But I know most people would read Titus 3 and say, wow, that is a pretty accurate description of my life. <laughs> what does he say? For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one Another Friends, we've got to remember the transforming power of the gospel. For the vision that we hold of God's will for us contrasts with the reality of who we were and are without Jesus. And Paul sets forth with blunt clarity what we are all like without God's grace. And this contrast reminds us of what Jesus has done for us and who we were before Christ. We were, what does he say? We were foolish. Foolish is, is the direct contradiction to wise. We lived without wisdom or without reason that aligns with godly wisdom. You see, we were perfectly satisfied with our personal rationale, with our personal knowledge, with our personal wisdom, with our personal, ration, uh, our personal understanding. But it was absent of godly wisdom. And Proverbs is clear. We cannot follow God. We cannot obey God. We cannot satisfy or please God without his wisdom. But a life without Jesus is a life without godly wisdom because Jesus is godly wisdom. Seven, first seven chapters of Proverbs. That's what it's all about. Jesus is the wisdom of God. And so we understand that foolish is the direct opposite of godly wisdom. We understand that disobedient. Think about how these contrast with the characteristics he gave in verses 1 and 2. Instead of being obedient, we were disobedient. We had a complete disregard for authority. In any expression, you tell me what you want me to do and I'll do the opposite. You tell me what I can't do and by my own will, I will kill myself trying to do it. Listen, that's my own testimony, friends. That, 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 in a nutshell, that is my personal testimony I'm a rebel at heart, and I loved my rebellion. And But for the grace of God, I would still be bound to it. And so would each of you, because sin makes us rebels. We don't want to submit to anyone. We want to rule our own lives. However that comes about, however that expression shows itself in your life. We are then led astray. So if we're without godly wisdom because we're foolish, if we're disobedient because we're rebellious, we are led astray. This is the result of disobedience and foolish understanding that leads us to make decisions that lead us away from God in every way and in every instance. Left to ourselves, we can only go away from God. No one is righteous, not even one. There is no inclination in you. There is no value or merit in you that causes you to go, hmm, I wonder about God. 
No, friends, that's the grace of God that even causes you to hmm and to wonder about God. We can only lead ourselves astray. We become slaves to various passions. This is the conclusion where vices control us. We become enslaved. We, we know no different. We pursue greater pleasure as, long as, uh, as stronger lusts begin to overtake us. And what happens is, or our, as we give ourselves into these, these lusts, our pleasures uh, seem to increase, but they, they lessen in their satisfaction. And because of the lessening of the worldly pleasures in their satisfaction, it causes our lust to grow stronger and stronger and desire more. And increasingly, this lust is growing while, com- uh, uh, while comparatively our, our, our pleasures in the world are decreasing. So as we desire them more, they're providing less to us. And that is being led astray. And that is when we become enslaved to the vicious cycle. But we don't know any different and we continue this pursuit. And every time one grows and is strengthened, we continually dig a deeper hole of deception because we see ourselves in this and, and we go, if I just want it a little more, then it'll give me what I want. But every time I indulge, it fails to give me, and so it strengthens my lust. And we're digging this hole, and we begin to see the world as the walls of the hole that we've dug instead of the reality that it really is. We're enslaved to the hole that we've dug because of our sin, and that makes us live our days squandered in malice and envy. Malice and envy, that's the pit we've dug that deceives us regarding the world. We become completely dissatisfied with our pleasure hold indulgence. And we look at others with contempt and jealousy because we think we see them, but all we really see is the hole we've dug, and we conceptualize what they're doing outside of our hole, and we hold contempt for them because we don't think they have it as hard as we have it. We don't think they have it as bad as we have it. We think everything has come easier to them, and we get jealous of them. But it's not about them. It's about the hole you're living in. That's what Paul is saying. And you know what they say about this person? That's the person nobody wants to be around. Hated by others and hating one another. A lack of godly wisdom makes us a completely undesirable person to ourselves and ultimately to others. Oh, bless your heart. I've got to go. You may not have been the worst of all of these. You may not have even been the worst of any one of these. But hear me, friends. What you were of any of these was enough to separate you from God eternally, to set you on a path of walking farther from God, and to condemn your soul eternally to separation from God in hell. For we once were, Paul says, All of this. See, graceless people become increasingly more undesirable to themselves as they become increasingly more consumed with themselves. And God's grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that distinguishes between verses 1 and 2 being true of our lives and verse 3 being true of our lives. It's the only thing that ceases... Verse 3, from being the epitaph of our life, 
and verse 1 and 2 becoming what God has written over our life. You see, when we forget that it's God's grace that saves, even our good deeds condemn us before God. That's what Isaiah tells us. And this includes any inherent good that we think we have as well. There, there is no part of me that holds any measure of saving worthiness or power for my life or for anyone else's. Without Jesus, we are hopelessly and we are helplessly damned in our sin. And you should never preach a sermon on Titus 3, 1 through 3. Because verse 4 starts with a big but. Don't ever stop reading the Bible at the word but. Because things are about to change. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. When was the last time we saw that word appeared? I've got this great illustration for this word appeared. It involves two scientific concepts. I know I'm not happy about it either. I didn't like it the Sunday that I used it, and so I'm not going back to it today. But can we just suffice it to say, let's call that appearance a grace boom. When God pierced the here and now with eternity, and His grace showed up. But, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. What happened? He saved us. What about your life? Somebody just got their wings. <laughs> that was perfect timing, man. <clears throat> Some churches play an organ when the pastor's preaching. We play our phones. <laughs> Just when the weight of condemnation seems to be about to crush, a loud creak and a crash stop the crushing blow. This appearance is God's great grace boom. When eternity pierces time and space, it's that moment when God's grace that appeared in Jesus takes hold in our heart and everything changes. When grace appears in us, God saves us. He didn't have to. He didn't need to. As a matter of fact, because of us, He had no good reason to. And listen, I'm about to give you the most defining characteristic of God. If you came here today and all you wanted to know was just something about God that might change your opinion about who He is or give you a little more information about who He is, I want to give you one characteristic of God from verse 4 in Titus 3 that helps you understand who He is and that drives everything about what He does in this world. And here it is. He saved just because he wanted to. That's who God is. He wanted to. Not because we're worthy or we're deserving, but because the Father is merciful. 
Because he is loving, because he is kind, because God is good. And all that was true of you and me in verse 3 is now washed in the blood of Jesus and new life by the Holy Spirit has been placed within us. God is living in us because of grace, because of this time when he pricked our hearts and he brought eternal life into the death of you and I. Grace makes us no longer alienated from God, but we are now made heirs with Christ, Paul says. That's what grace does for us. God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. This we must remember, friends, the less you believe that verse 3 actually describes you or any semblance of you, the less you'll believe that verses 4 through 7 is necessary for you. And the moment that you forget the reality of verse 3, that that, that, that is you without Jesus, becomes the moment that you think Jesus doesn't matter all that much in every moment, in every situation, in every relationship, and in every circumstance of life. Here's the Christian mantra, I am often not what I ought to be, and surely I am not what I will be. But praise God, by grace alone, I am no longer what I used to be. Amen. Amen. Is that your testimony today? It's mine. It's mine. Not about who you are. Salvation is about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Grace transforms all of life from sin condemned to grace boomed to father loved to Jesus covered to spirit washed and regenerated and filled. Friends, we must remember the transforming power of grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ or we will never make following Jesus a priority for our life. It's the only way we can follow him. And salvation is God's mission in the world. God's mission becomes the mission that he gives to his people, or gives his people to, rather. Because God's grace appeared, we preach grace everywhere so God can save. Salvation is strong in us. Mission will remain a top priority for us. And this grace, it makes a distinct change in life. Once you've received the gospel, receiving in life is no longer sufficient. You see, God fills us so that we are content, so that we are satisfied, so that we can give and primarily give through how? Well, here's your third priority, to devote yourself to good works. That's what he says in verse 8. Teach the people, train the people to devote themselves to good works. Paul tells Titus, That the gospel, that the saying that he has just given should be insisted upon in order to move people to devote themselves to good works. This is the point that God, at which God saves us to good works in this world. You see, the gospel reorients a person from being served and self-serving to serve as Jesus modeled. And so serving to do good works is worthy of every Christian's devotion. Serving is not an admirable deed for the Christian. It is an essential discipline in which we devote our lives to God and to other people. And he says this, that Christians do a specific kind of good deeds. They are deeds that are good. Now, the word good is not just a generic term here, friends. Actually, it's a reference to a characteristic of the one who has saved us. 
But when God appeared, when grace appeared, the goodness and loving kindness of our God, he saved us. You see, when we do good works in the world as Christians, we don't just do them for good to be kind of nebulously thrown out there. We do them to reflect and to represent the God that we worship because he is good. In other words, good deeds should always be accompanied with a testimony that points others towards the motivation that we have and the only one that ultimately is worthy of glory, God himself. God wants his people to be ready to do works that reflect him as the only one who is good. And the giver of every gift, that is what? God is good. We should devote ourselves to good deeds. That's what he's saying. Christians devote themselves to good works to demonstrate the goodness and loving kindness of Jesus. And so devoting oneself to good works is so important. He says what? I want you to do what? I want you to hear you say it. What does he say? Look at verse 8. It's an open book test. Yes, I'm going to use it against you. I just want to warn you now. This saying is trustworthy. What's this saying? It's the gospel. That's what he's talking about there. And what does he say? And I want you to what? Insist, I'm glad you asked me. It's so important. It should be insisted upon. You know, a lot of people expect their pastor and leaders to entertain them. But few beckon their pastors and leaders to insist anything upon their life, let alone serving. No, 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 no. I'm not happy with you until you insist that I do more. Mm, You're regretting it now, aren't you? It's okay. We'll get beyond that. We'll get beyond that to where you love it. As a matter of fact, most today are completely offended if you try to insist on anything for their lives. So with this consideration in mind, I want to say this to you. Our leadership will continue to insist upon serving for every person who calls himself a Christian. Unceasingly insisting. I tell our staff often, never hesitate nor apologize to ask, to encourage, and to urge people to serve. Friends, people love to say no to serving, and maybe this is you. But leaders serve people best when we just won't take no for an answer. No. We don't need you to do everything. As a matter of fact, one of the greatest sins of leadership in the church is that we try to do everything. Because when we're doing something, somebody else is denied the opportunity. You see, serving is a Christian's path to growth and maturity. Because until you've served, everything remains only information without action. Does that ring a bell with any command in the Bible? Information without action? What are we warned against in James 1.22? Do not be just hearers of the word, but be what? Doers. That is serving to do good deeds. I labor, our leadership labors, our elders, our staff, our leadership at LifePoint labors to build, not just to get you to do something, that's not the point, but to build a culture of people who deeply long to serve one another and the world. Deeply long. And our goal is to keep digging so that the depth of that longing would only grow deeper and deeper and deeper. Serving holds incalculable incalculable good for Christian growth and maturity. I don't have time to unpack that, but listen, let me just say it this way. Christians don't live out the Christian life. 
we talk about it that way. Rather, we live out of the life that Christ has placed within us. And the life that Christ placed within us is a life of serving. And if we're going to live it out, it's got to be done through serving. God created you to do good works, Christian. Ephesians 2.10 says he's already got a list for you. All you got to do is listen, and he'll be faithful to give it to you. He'll be faithful to strengthen, it, uh, strengthen you for it, and he'll be faithful to bring great joy, pleasure, contentment, and satisfaction to your life through it. Nothing else will compare to it. The fourth priority for today is this. I'm going to be quick on this one. We not only need to hold a vision for our lives, we not only need to remember the transforming power of grace, we, we not only need to devote ourselves to doing good works, but we need to guard against divisions. We need to guard against divisions. Look at verses 9 through 11. The biggest temptations will always appeal to our strongest desires and our most vulnerable areas of life. But friends, following Jesus demands that we guard against anything that threatens to distract, to deceive, or to deter our faithfulness. And Paul says simply this, that anything that is unprofitable should not be prioritized, nor should it be allowed to interfere in following Jesus. He gives another list here, foolish controversies. Well, if you've got two fools, what are they going to do? What's going to be called if they start arguing? A controversy, right? Foolish controversies. And how quickly we can default from living in godly wisdom to just devolving to foolishness in our controversies and our actions. It's derived from a pre-grace understanding, a grace-less, an absence of grace. Genealogies. Here's another one. And, and this reference is really the way a family lineage is used in religious practices for personal significance. In other words, uh, in that day and time, they would study these geneal- genealogies to see how, how, how much God loved them. And I don't know all that it meant, and surely there was a great uh, uh, way of worshiping God through these, or actually worshiping the genealogies, which we've even seen in some religions today. But for us, I think as evangelicals, we need to understand this, that one application this holds for us is that no matter how deep Christianity rolls into your family tree, it only works for you if it's personal. Grandma and grandpa, aunt and uncle, mama and daddy can't make you a Christian. Grace either pricks your heart or you are not a follower of Jesus. Dissensions, it refers to strifes and quarrels among people. Quarrels about the law. People love to argue over theology, but they have no orthodoxy or orthopraxy that comes from it. In other words, they love to tell everybody what they know, but they're not living it out, and their heart's not anymore in love with Jesus because of it. It's as worthless as any other practice in the world. Christians personally guard against unprofitable practices so that they don't get distracted from following Jesus. You see, when we serve Jesus' mission together, it builds unity that guards against divisions within us and also among us. And might I just say this, very quickly to close. Those divisions among us are important because there are times and situations when individuals must be addressed directly because of what they're creating among the body. People who like or to be 
uh, excuse me, people who like to be or who like to create stumbling blocks. They just simply need to be put out of the way. That's what he says. Warn them once, warn them twice, have nothing else to do with them. It's an open door policy to get in. But it's just a, it's not a whatever you think goes to get you to stay. The unity of the body of Christ should be guarded as a top priority, not just by the leaders, but by every person in the church. And it begins with how you relate to one another. That's what he's saying. Okay, I'm going to ask the worship team to return. Friends, grace transforms us to follow Jesus. How are you doing? How is your life in following Christ? Are you walking with Him daily? Are, are, you, are you learning about who He is and more importantly, seeing who He wants to be in your heart and in your life? How's your following of Him going? Are you struggling with that? Probably 100% of us are in some area or we've just come off of it or lo and behold, before the end of the day, we're going to walk right into it. You see, that's what grace is all about. Holding a vision, remembering the transforming power, devoting ourselves to good works, and guarding against those things that want to deter us from God's mission in our heart and in our life. What's the Spirit saying to you this morning? Where do you need to take that one step? Maybe that one prayer that He's placed on your heart to pray. That one action, that one relationship that you need to deal with to to begin to bring reconciliation through it. Where's the Spirit leading you this morning? Because as the Spirit leads, Jesus is walking and you can follow Him. And grace that comes from God means that however it goes, God's going to bring good to you through it and to others as well. You can trust Him, will you? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Lord Jesus, would you help us today to understand that grace transforms us to follow you? And God, as your spirit leads each and every one of us, speaking very personally and applying the gospel to us, God, help us not to turn from you, to look in another direction, but look only to you, to listen us to receive what you have for us, that we might follow you all the days of our life. Be our God. We will be your people. Walk among us by your Spirit even now to make us what you want us to be. In Jesus' name.